how do you catch a killer? It's probably the question detectives ask at the beginning of any case as they build profiles, follow leads, and track their movements looking for patterns. The Unabomber was ratted out by his own brother. Al Capone was taken down by one count of tax evasion. You do what needs to be done to stop them as fast as possible. Today's countdown delivers the most extraordinary ways some of the most notorious killers were caught. You'll recognize the names, but you may not know the means in which they were actually stopped. And that includes number one. You'll be familiar with his crimes, but maybe not the eerie details of his capture. all you weirdos welcome to crime countdown a spotify original from parcast i'm ash and i'm elena every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes all picked by the parcast research gods this episode we're counting down the top 10 extraordinary ways killers got caught so I think you would think the reason that most heinous killers are in jail is like the fact that they are like heinous killers. Yeah, that's a part of You'd it. You'd think that. Obviously they stay there because of that and that's where they're able to keep them. But sometimes they get caught in like really minor things, at least in comparison to murder minor. No, it's very true. And it's definitely, in my opinion, due to arrogance in some way, shape or form. I think arrogance comes with the territory for these kind of jerks, for sure. Mm -hmm, that's just I part agree. of it. And when you get too arrogant, you get too sloppy because you think you're above reproach. You think you can get away with it. They're looking somewhere else. It's it's arrogance. Absolutely. And I would actually say arrogance and some good police work are what got my number one caught on this list. Ooh. This dude was wilding out <laughs> and clearly he thought that he would never get stopped. But really, the joke is on him. Hardy har, I want to know who it is. Lol. But yeah, I have a couple on this list that got caught for sure by some good detective work as well, which is nice to see. Yes. But I'm excited to see who number one is because I have some real heavy hitters on my half of the list. So I'm like, who's left though? Right? Who are? Who is that? I know. I'm excited, for lack of a better word, <laughs> to yeah. see who's on your list too, because that's how this whole thing works. Selena has five people on her list and so do I, but neither of us know who the other one has. Let's start the countdown. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. 
10. I'll start us off with number 10, Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And while the FBI calls it one of the most exhaustive investigations in the Bureau's history, a lot of people may not realize that McVeigh was actually caught just 90 minutes after the attack because of a routine traffic stop. Wow. April 19th, 1995 at 9.02 a.m., a bomb was detonated in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. This was just two years after a bomb went off at the World Trade Center in New York, which made it unfortunately easy to assume it was a terrorist attack by someone from outside the U.S. as that one was. But as we know, it was not. What the Oklahoma City bombing had in common with the 93 World Trade Center attack is that it was also a truck bomb. A rented rider truck was used in Oklahoma City. That truck's rear axle was found in the rubble, which had a vehicle identification number on it, which is wild. I know, that really is. The FBI traced that part to an auto body shop. Employees there gave a description of Timothy Bay. Going off his description, local hotel employees were able to give the FBI his actual name. Turns out, Timothy McVeigh was already in jail when they ran his name through the system. About 80 miles north of the city, a state trooper pulled him over because his car was missing a license plate. I love, imagine being that officer that pulled him over and was like, ooh, gotta come with me. Gotta come with me. The trooper discovered McVeigh also had a concealed weapon and arrested him, unaware by the way. So right now he has no idea. Right. Unaware just yet that he was the domestic terrorist the entire country was looking for. That man better have gotten some kind of medal. Right? There ended up being traces of the bomb chemicals in his clothes. He had made notes about TNT that the FBI found in his belongings, and it turns out he had some extreme anti-government views, which is like, whoa, shocking. Yeah, right. But this is so impressive that they were able to just be like, boom, 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 boom. Like, they moved on this so oh, yeah. quickly. And especially, it was a, a good while ago. Like, it really is impressive, the work that they it did. It really, it just seemed to all fall into place. It which did. Which is the best it could have gone. Right. Nine. At number nine is... The Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Between 1984 and 1985, old stanky breath Richard Ramirez snaked his way around the Los Angeles area at night, breaking into homes and savagely attacking and murdering people at random. He had the entire city on edge with how unpredictable he was and the fact that no one really knew who he was. But once his name and face covered the front pages of the newspapers and the local news, residents of one LA neighborhood not only spotted him, but helped stop him once and for all. Greatest story ever. This is my favorite. In 1989, Ramirez was finally convicted of 13 murders and sentenced to death. The chase to identify and catch him was lengthy, but it took a while to connect all the clues, evidence, and tips to even figure out who the police were after. They had shoe prints, survivor accounts that mentioned how bad his breath was. Oh, he's stinky. And descriptions of cars he had stolen and was driving around. His killings had a satanic ritualistic skew. He left satanic symbols at murder scenes, was obsessed with the devil, and mutilated victims' bodies. This partly connected crime scenes at the time. 
There was a point where Ramirez made a trip to San Francisco and killed again, which got the San Francisco police roped into the case. And this was probably a crucial move on his part. Absolutely. Eventually, San Francisco police got a tip about a man named Rick from El Paso, Texas, which is where Ramirez was from. That tip and connecting clues together led them to the Night Stalker's real name, Richard Ramirez. He had an arrest record, so Ramirez was in the system. Super helpful. That's very helpful that he was already in there. <laughs> it always is. So the police released his name and pictures to the press, and it was everywhere. With his name and face out there, Ramirez tried to make a run for it. Literally. At one point, he runs across the freeway and into the neighborhood of Boyle Heights. He desperately tried to carjack a couple people. One woman he tried it on screamed. We could probably call this the scream that took down the stalker. Yes. Because neighbors hear all this going on and start coming out of their houses and recognize Ramirez from the news. Tired of this man's murdering ways, a mob of people subdued, beat, and held him down long enough for the police to arrive, who Ramirez was actually happy to see at that point. That is my favorite part of this, is that he was literally begging the police to help him, like, oh, yeah. save me like, from these wow, people. wow, how does that feel for you? Oh, it's like, oh, okay. Like, you're so tough at night. Yeah, exactly. So tough. What a tough guy. And, like, how about the daylight, buddy? Yeah, the sun comes up, and now we see who you really are. Exactly. So poetic. He received 19 death penalties, but died on death row in 2013. He sure did. Goodbye. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of extraordinary ways killers got caught is Son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Just like Richard Ramirez, Berkowitz's crime spree lasted about a year and had no discernible pattern, which made it more difficult to catch him. But unlike Ramirez, who drove around in stolen cars, Berkowitz made either the stupid or arrogant mistake of driving around in his own car with his actual license plate on it, a move that ultimately led to his arrest. Dingus. Dingus is right. After serving in the army where he became a skilled marksman, Berkowitz's mental health deteriorated. He continued to feel isolated, claiming that demons and his neighbor's dog urged him to kill. July 28, 1976, Berkowitz's infamous year-long stint of murder began when he shot and killed Donna Loria and wounded Jody Valenti as the teen sat in a car talking. Over the next year, he killed six people in total and wounded seven others. Before he was caught, he sent letters to detectives and the media taunting them. But the letters really didn't do much in terms of identifying or catching him. Instead, the letters just scared New Yorkers more and gave them a nickname to call him by, Son of Sam. The way he got caught proves that even in the 70s, the idea of see something, say something works. Truly. Yeah. Berkowitz got caught thanks to a very observant woman, Cecilia Davis, who was walking her dog on August 10th, 1977. I love that it includes a dog. It always includes walking a dog. Davis happened to walk past Berkowitz, who she reported had an odd walk just before hearing gunshots. When police talked to her, she also remembered the detail that would get Berkowitz caught. She recalled police giving a car a parking ticket. She gave them a description of the car, and police looked up all the tickets from that area around the time and found the car and its owner, David Berkowitz. 
When he was caught, he immediately confessed. Even more terrifying, according to Time magazine, he was about to go to a Hamptons nightclub with a semi-automatic weapon and, quote, go down in a blaze of glory. That's so terrifying. Imagine if Cecilia hadn't walked her dog that day. That she saved so many people. And by, like, realizing what was around her. You know how many times I'm walking around and my head's just, like somewhere else completely. Thank you. I was just thinking that I try to be observant. Like I try to have my head on a swivel as much as possible. Yeah. But Cecilia was on like another level. Uh, seriously. Like she remembered the walk. She remembered and to remember the car and the car having a parking ticket on it. It's a lot. Get it, Good Cecilia. For her. Good for you. She, again, another person who deserves a medal. A national treasure. Seven. At number seven this week is the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. D'Angelo was arrested in April 2018 after decades of eluding detectives. They spent years just trying to simply identify the man responsible for raping and killing so many victims in California during the 70s and 80s. Despite having a sample of his DNA, it took an extraordinary and sometimes debated method of matching that DNA to the man they'd been hunting for years. During the 70s and 80s, when the Golden State Killer was active with his crimes, genealogy sites and companies didn't exist like they do today. Meaning, companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, where you voluntarily submit your DNA to track your family tree and genetic predispositions, etc. I am obsessed with 23andMe. I love 23andMe. I found out so much about <laughs> yeah, myself. It's a lot of fun. It really is. It really is. I found out that I was Jewish and I had no idea. I know. That's crazy. Yeah. That like blew my mind. You can find out so, so much cool. about yourself and you can also find out who was terrorizing neighborhoods for yeah, you can find decades. Out, find out if you're related to a horrible murderer. This is not an ad. No. Anyways, these companies usually come with privacy agreements to protect their users. The privacy agreement is the area where it gets a little dicey when you hear stories like this one. Authorities took the DNA sample they had of the Golden State Killer, which they got from some of the crime scenes, and began searching these genealogical databases to find either a direct match or a partial match to a relative that would help them narrow down their focus. It's called familial DNA. The LA Times reported that this method narrowed the search dramatically to a few families and about 100 men who fit the profile of the Golden State Killer. Can you imagine being the one to like be part of that narrowing down? I can't imagine seeing it get narrowed down and being like, he's in this small group of people. And like, we are almost like, there. The I, I'm like, I, I have like a thrill going through me right now just thinking about it and I wasn't even there. And I, I still remember the day that they like oh, came yeah. out that they caught him. I can't imagine being the person responsible for that Must or like be working on the team responsible for yeah. that. Because eventually that process led them to then 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. who was living in the suburbs of Sacramento. Like Still just, there. Just living in the suburbs of Sacramento. Never left. Insane. Dots were connected and he was caught. California began allowing the state to use familial DNA in 2008 as a last resort in investigations. But ethical and privacy concerns are the reason some civil liberty groups are against using it. I don't know how you could be against it at I this point. I love it, personally. The Golden State Killer was sentenced to life in prison after pleading guilty to 13 murders and various other crimes. But seriously, familial DNA for the win. I just, this was just a great win for it, for it sure. It absolutely was. I understand that some people think it's a slippery slope. I, I totally get that. Like, I get where people are coming from with that. I really do. Yeah. 
I just I dig it. I think it's great, and I think if it, if it's if it's gonna catch like killers like this, right after decades, because that's the thing. I mean, this was literally one of the most prolific serial killers ever. Yeah, and all it's it, all this did was just narrow it down from families. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't. I love it. Six. Also on our list at number six is Dennis Nilsson. Scottish-born Nilsson was living in a London flat when he was arrested in February 1983. He confessed to murdering 15 or 16 young men, victims who tended to be homeless or who he met in pubs and brought back to his flat. The day his killing career came to an end, however, began with a simple phone call to a plumber. Nilsson and his neighbors had complained that the pipes were clogged in their building. Some neighbors even reported a strange odor. A plumber was sent out to check the drain, opened it up, and was met with a putrid smell. When he looked into the drain, he saw what was soon identified as human flesh and bones floating in the water. I cannot imagine. You just plumb your whole life and this is what you see. You you just plumb. You've been plumbing since the day you were born. Steady and this is plumbing and this is what you walk into. And also it's like, wow, yeah, that'll do it. That'll That'll block the pipes. I also would quit my job immediately. Yeah, that would be it for me. When Nilsson looked in the drain, he reportedly said, quote, It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. What does that even mean, sir? And Excuse who would do me? that? Like, who would ever flush Kentucky Fried Chicken? And also, so specific. <laughs> Very not rotisserie. Not, not just fried chicken. Not any other kind of chicken. That, to me, looks like... The special recipe, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Is like, that popcorn chicken? I'd be like, arrest him immediately. Like, yeah, I, like, I don't what? even know what's going on. Arrest him for something. Who flushes chicken? No one does. Turns out, after killing his victims in his flat, Nilsson often lived with their bodies for days before dismembering them and flushing some parts down the drain. I just don't... I mean, that's horrific. Like, yeah. that's one of the saddest things I've ever yeah. heard for those victims. I cannot imagine why he would think that he would just be able to do that forever. No. Like, you can't flush a lot of things down the toilet, my guy. Toilets are sensitive. And also, why are you also complaining about the plumbing later? Right. Like, Like, I would be like, the plumbing's fine, everyone. What are you guys even talking about? What's everyone complaining about? No, he's just with everybody. Like, the plumbing stinks. What's going on? Now, it's speculated, which I'm sure you're probably thinking, because I was, it's speculated that he wanted to get caught because... He's the one who made the landlord aware of the plumbing issues and insisted they be checked out, or he said he wouldn't pay rent. So it feels like he wanted to get caught. I don't know why. He probably just wanted to be that terrifying. He wanted to make it known. And after his arrest, Nilsson expressed the relief he felt in coming clean about his crimes. So maybe that was the reason he just was done with living with it. I love that he had to do this, like the theater route. That's the thing. Just call the police and be like, hello, I'm Dennis Nilsson. I've been the one killing all those people. Exactly. They're like, run down to the police station and say like, you got to arrest me because of A, B, C, and D. Just do it. 
like you don't need to call a plumber and ruin no. his life and ruin everybody in the buildings like, like everybody's got to deal with that now come on man i mean also these questions just all stem back to why are you a murderer why are you murdering people right. in the first place and flushing them down the toilet I'm glad that we don't understand your psyche well dennis nilson died in prison 35 years into his life sentence okay goodbye sir Dennis Nilsson is one of, I mean, we we haven't covered him on Morbid or anything, and no. I don't even know if we've mentioned him on Crime Countdown, but oh boy, he's a scary, scary guy. And the fact that he got caught because he called a plumber is, ooh. Yeah, what, oh boy. what a strange way for that all to end. Truly. And just, that's a really, art, I don't even strange. know a lot about the, the cases, but that sounds heartbreaking. Yeah. But one of my favorites has to be the Golden State Killer. Oh, yeah, the way he was caught is just the absolute best. I love that he was caught that way because while he's blissfully sitting in his home thinking that for decades and decades he's gotten away with being one of the worst monsters in the world, they were sitting there just slowly narrowing that down with each strand of DNA. It was just getting narrowed down, narrowed down. And it's like waiting for him to like throw out a sandwich or just blow your nose, do smoke a cig, like any of it. I loved it. It's the best. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of extraordinary ways killers got caught. Starting off the second half of our list is the toy box killer, David Parker Ray. Yikes. Ray kept journals over his lifetime that documented his kidnapping and torturing of women. Sick man. He was a very sick man. He wrote that he fantasized about these crimes back in 1955. In those writings, he also said he had up to 40 victims. Some survived. Many have never been found, which leads many to believe that he did in fact kill them. Sadly, their bodies were never found, and Ray was never charged with murder. But luckily, he was arrested in March 1999, thanks to one brave survivor who was put in a very vulnerable position. On March 22, 1999, calls come into 911 to report a woman who's in the streets of Elephant Butte, New Mexico, trying to stop cars. She was naked, only wearing a dog collar. That woman was Cynthia Vigil. Who had just escaped after being kidnapped, held hostage, and tortured by the toy box killer and his girlfriend. I just, I always say, like, I can't even imagine this no. sight. Uh, you're just like driving to get groceries or like leave your house for work for the day, and you see a naked woman running down the streets, probably just the most panicked person you've ever seen in your life, wearing a dog collar. 
And imagine if you're like with your kids or something yeah. and you're just like, I have to help this person, but what is happening? And like, then you sit there and you're like, should I help this person? Or is this like a, a, is like this a crazy trap? way for me yeah. to get hurt? Like, it's a real, I'm so glad that people did stop and like absolutely. kudos to them. So terrifying. David Parker Ray had a 22 foot long trailer that sat behind his house, which was filled with ways to torture his victims. This is where the toy box nickname comes from. Cynthia was a sex worker who went to Ray's trailer with him. Ray then pretended to be a police officer as an excuse to get her into handcuffs. In a moment of luck, Ray left the handcuff keys on the table near her. And as Cynthia unlocked herself, Ray's girlfriend and accomplice hit her over the head with a lamp trying to stop her. Thankfully, she got herself unlocked and escaped, getting to that busy street to get help. It must have felt like emerging into an oasis running onto that street. Absolutely. Like, I'm like stressed out even just yeah. telling this story. This was also one of the first ones we did on Morbid, and it yeah. literally broke me as it, a human. Yeah, it broke you pretty early on. Obviously, like we said before, this probably scared or confused drivers, but she did get the help she needed and led police to David Parker Ray's disgusting toy box. Police found written and recorded evidence of so many victims, but despite that and confessions by Ray's two accomplices that were later recanted, the bodies of those women were never found. That's the saddest part of this whole thing. It really is. Like, you know they're there. And I can only imagine how many victims he had. Like, yeah. he says 40, but who even who knows? knows? Three women who survived, including Cynthia, were able to get separate trials against him for kidnapping and rape charges. He received a sentence of 223 years and died in prison in 2002. Just, I can't imagine the kind of person that Cynthia Vigil was to not only endure everything that she had gone through mm -hmm. while being there, but also escape and get help. Like, and then after all that, went through a trial where she had to look at this man all over again. Because I think that's something that a lot of people, including myself in the beginning of do, especially when we started our podcast, didn't really think too far into how stressful a trial is on a yeah. victim. No. Like you just don't put yourself in that state of mind because you, you're not really forced to unless you're there. Right. But when you really think about it, they're having to relive everything and look at the person who did it to them in the same room. Right. Separated by air and a bailiff. Right. It's like, that's it's like, so traumatizing. It's like an immersive way to get through oh, it, but horrifying. I can't imagine. No, I can't. Four. Landing at number four this week is Joel Rifkin. Rifkin was a 34-year-old unemployed landscaper from Long Island back in 1993 when he was arrested for murder and confessed to killing 17 women. But unlike Timothy McVeigh at number 10, where he had a weapon on him that caused a chain reaction, Rifkin had much more damning evidence in his car that told police immediately they had a killer on their hands. Rifkin's murders took place between 1989 and 1993. He'd cruise around and pick up sex workers before killing them. Even more twisted, he lived with his mother and sister, and he murdered and dismembered some of his victims in the house. His downfall started in June 1993. Around 3 a.m., Rifkin was spotted driving his 1984 Mazda pickup truck without a license plate. 
Why do they all do that? I was literally, you beat me to it. I was just <laughs> taking a breath to say that same sentence. Like, you need a license plate, everybody. Like, it's very clear. State troopers noticed this, of course. As and they do. <laughs> and attempted to pull him over. But Rifkin decided to try and outrun them instead. That usually doesn't work. No. It's been reported that the 20-minute chase was not very fast. They never exceeded 50 miles per hour. Wow. So, like, was he really trying to get away or just stall? Like, I think he was probably trying to stall and, like, figure out what figure the out heck where to, to go. go. You may be thinking, after 20 minutes, he just gave up. But nope. Rifkin crashed the car into a utility pole right in front of the courthouse where he was later convicted of murder. The drama of it all, already, just right from the get-go. Also, I love that he, like, lost control of his car at 50 miles yeah, an like, hour. Yeah, he was just like, what? Now, again, you're probably thinking, but wait a second. How did they know he was a killer? Oh, I know. I was wondering. After he crashed, police were handcuffing him for the license plate violation when they noticed a smell. Oh, the body of one of his victims was in the trunk of his car. You think that you're just doing like a routine stop after this weird car chase? Yeah. And that's what, yep. you, that's what your night is? You find so much more. Rifkin quickly admitted to killing her and 16 others in graphic detail. I mean, how else would you explain a body in the trunk? You've got to be like, not know. here it is. There's really no getting around that. No, it's right there. Another twisted moment was that Rifkin's mother at one point had been in the car while the body was in the trunk, but she claimed she never smelled anything. Oh, man. Which is wow. If you read more about her, some don't believe that she was uh, totally ignorant to his murders. So yeah, another so story go, for another day. Yeah, another day. Joel Rifkin was sentenced to 203 years in prison. To which I say, not enough. Not enough at all. Three. Number three on our countdown of extraordinary ways killers got caught is Jeffrey Dahmer. Between 1978 and 1991, Dahmer killed 17 men, occasionally eating parts of them, which you can hear more about in our Creepy Cannibals episode. What's frustrating is there were several opportunities for Dahmer to be caught. But luckily, police took at least one opportunity seriously and paid a visit to Dahmer's apartment in Wisconsin. It's well known that Dahmer repeatedly drugged men with sleeping pills, strangled them, and then dismembered them. He put pieces of his victims in the refrigerator or the freezer and would dine on those on occasion. One of the men that could have been another Dahmer victim was Tracy Edwards. On July 22, 1991, Edwards was spotted running down the street with handcuffs hanging from his wrist. Edwards told police that he had escaped an assault from Dahmer and said he'd lead them to Dahmer's apartment. Lucky for Edwards and possibly future victims, police followed through on what Edwards was saying and paid a visit to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment. Police then came eye to eye with a man who should have been serving a long prison sentence already. Yup. Prior to Tracy Edwards, Dahmer was accused of rape and assault in the army, arrested for indecent exposure, caught drugging patrons of a gay bathhouse. Like, how was he not already in oh, prison? It just kept happening. And then, between 1988 and 1989, he was imprisoned for drugging young boys and sexually assaulting them. This all happened while murdering other victims. So in May of 1991, according to Dahmer, he drilled a hole in the head of a young boy and poured in acid to make him zombie-like. Both encountered police when the boy managed to leave the apartment. 
This one's horrifying. It's so heartbreaking. The officers involved said they believed Dahmer when he told them the boy was his lover and let them be. Dahmer killed the boy after, and those officers were temporarily fired. Nothing makes me angrier than hearing that sentence. No, and if you hear like the actual like transcript of them talking about this, they were basically making fun of them. Yeah. Not even basically making fun of them, they were making fun oh, of them. Oh, 100, like they were like homophobically making fun of them. Yeah, they're disgusting it's, and they shouldn't have been temporarily fired. They should have been fired and never gotten hired anywhere else again. 100%. So, when Edwards flagged down police and told them his story, this time police thankfully looked into it and went to Dahmer's apartment. Dahmer answered the door and told another lie to police. They may have believed it had they not spotted Polaroids of dismembered victims. Like, good eye. Yeah, that's like Hawkeye's. I know, Thank goodness they were actually looking around the apartment while talking to him and not just taking this random dude's word. Right. They searched his home and found parts of several victims. He even spray-painted some of their skulls and displayed them, knowing they looked like plastic replicas. God. Just, that's so wild no. to me. Dahmer was arrested, sentenced to 16 life terms, and killed by a fellow inmate on November 28, 1994. He sure was. Oh, Jeffrey Dahmer is always such a thing to talk about. I know. And Jeffrey Dahmer, at least, like, when he was caught, it was because he, like, assaulted somebody. Right. But some of these other ones, the ways they're, like, Joel Rifkin. Yeah. Like, didn't have a license plate. What? And then just tried to do, like, a low-speed car chase, hit a telephone, a utility pole. (laughs) And he's like, oh, yeah, that, by the way, that's a problem. I can't. What are you you doing? I don't even have more words for him. I genuinely just can't. No, I cannot with Joel Rifkin. Even David Parker Ray just leaving the key to the handcuffs right there. I mean, thankfully he did that, but like, really, dude? But it shows you too how little they think of their victims, especially the toy box killer. Mm -hmm. Like that he didn't think she was going to try to get out of there. And he didn't think she could. Well, and And she did. He got arrogant because he had already done it so many times. Exactly. But joke's on you. And you're also dead now. Rest in distress. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of extraordinary ways killers got caught. And number two is BTK, Dennis Rader. Uh, Let's just be honest, Rader was cocky. 
and detectives used that to their advantage. He wanted the attention for his crimes, which began in the 70s. So when he seemingly came out of hiding in 2004, after it was reported he was possibly dead, because he needs that spotlight, detectives used that moment to outsmart him. And then authorities went one step further to be 100% sure that BTK was, in fact, Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader had killed 10 people in the Wichita, Kansas area starting in the 70s. And then it seemed like he just disappeared in 1991. That really was like a wild thing that yeah. he just stopped. For that long, too. I feel like you really so don't ever hear about that. And he went so hard for so long and then he just stopped. Mm hmm. Now, there was speculation. We don't know if he stopped killing, like we were just saying. Right. Or he was just quiet about some crimes, which is easy, even scarier. I don't know if he was, though. Because it, could, it was between 1991 and 2004. I mean, anything's possible with him. He yeah. could have just been quiet, and we could not know that he has other victims. It's definitely true, but at the same time, he was so freaking arrogant. That's I, true. It's hard to believe, but also not hard to believe at all. Or was he committing other crimes that weren't murder? True. To try to, like, just get the same feeling, mm -hmm. but then he decided it wasn't enough. Maybe. Who knows? So in 2004, news reports were also speculated that whoever BTK was, he was either dead or maybe in prison. Wrong. Guess who popped his head back out there whenever he heard those rumors? He was like, excuse me, what? It's, it's me, it's BTK. Dennis Rader. I'm not dead. Not to be forgotten, Rader reached out to then-police lieutenant Ken Landwehr, who was in charge of finding and capturing BTK. So he was like, hey, hey here I am. Hello there. Rader asked if he communicated with them via floppy disk. Could they trace it to a specific computer? Like they were going to tell him, yeah, buddy, don't do that, because, you know, that's how we're going to catch you. Are you <laughs> crapping me? Like, what? Like, are you serious? Are you real? Like, uh, for real? And he was. He was both real and serious with this. <laughs> and police responded with a coded message in a newspaper being like, no, totally not. Just do it. Like, Whoa. winky face emoji. Like, it's cool. You're T -T fine. TTYLD. You and me, best friends forever. We're not going to tell anybody. Hags. So Raider just sent this floppy disk to a TV station. Police traced it to a computer at church where Dennis Raider attended services. At a church. <laughs> like BTK. Not even a church. The church that he was at. <laughs> literally, like BTK was attending this church yep. and wrote about murdering people. He had a position at this church. And was actively being a murderer like his name was connected to something like administrative files at this church and he used that computer the conundrum in which we are speaking right now i literally can't the aba journal quoted lieutenant landwehr quote him sending that disc is what cracked the case if he had just quit killing and kept his mouth shut we might never have connected the dots. That's what's nuts to me. I mean, I'm super thankful for his stupidity. So glad. But it's true. If he just never said anything... He could have just gone on forever. Even if he had started killing again, we, we might still be sitting here being like, I wonder who BTK is. Yeah, absolutely. Like, who knows? But you want to be 100% sure you have the right guy. To help do that, the police wanted to match the DNA they already had from the killer to that of Dennis Rader, of course but they weren't going to just walk up and get it from him. Remember how police used familial DNA to catch the Golden State Killer at number seven? I do. We're about to go a step further. Let's go. Police learned that Dennis Rader's daughter had recently had a medical test done at a hospital. 
A judge gave an order for them to collect her DNA from the hospital, and they had that familial match. When they brought Raider in for an interrogation, he reportedly said, quote, I'm BTK, you got me. He should have said, I'm BTK, yes, I named myself, you got me. You got me. I am that lame. He pleaded guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder and is serving 10 life sentences. Good riddance. Goodbye. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of top 10 extraordinary ways killers got caught. John Wayne Gacy. Oh, I was wondering. Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. You'll see a similarity here between Dennis Rader and Gacy when it comes to the level of arrogance they both exuded, which can probably be said for many serial killers, to be honest. Sadly, before he was caught, John Wayne Gacy murdered 33 young men throughout the 70s. But an eerie decision by a friend of one victim would cause a domino effect that ended with Gacy sentenced to death in 1980 and executed by lethal injection in 1994. So Gacy was like a great pretender. He masqueraded around Chicago in the 70s like he was an upstanding businessman. He even got involved in local politics. He even once took a photo with Rosalind Carter. Like, super fancy. That's very fancy. He also dressed up like a clown for kids' parties, which we know became a much creepier fact after the truth came out. I also feel like a lot of killers like have this same vibe where it's like, oh, he was such a nice neighbor. He was a really upstanding politician. I was gonna have dinner with him and his wife next week. Yes, we see that so many times. We see, we saw it with Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought he was like a great guy. Yeah. Thought he was an attractive guy. Right. And then we also, um, the railroad killer. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we recently covered that on Morbid and his whole entire family was shocked. Yeah. They were like, it, these people really do live double lives. Yes. Obviously. Absolutely. But who was Gacy really? Well, the truth about Gacy was that before he moved back to Chicago around the early 70s to be a fake model citizen, he had a dark past. He was living in Iowa with his wife and two kids running a KFC restaurant. But the marriage ended when Gacy went to jail in 1968 for sexually assaulting one of his employees. He was sentenced to 10 years, but only served a fraction of that due to good behavior. He had a hundred lives in the legal system. Oh, it's crazy. When you look in his case, it's just one after the other where you're like, why? He knew how to turn on that good boy attitude. He slipped through every crack. He was weirdly like a people person. Yeah. So he comes back to Chicago and starts up a construction business, acts like he's a stand-up guy. But in 1972, Gacy commits his first murder. Over the years, several victims would be young men who were looking for work at his construction business. Life basically repeated itself, but instead of a KFC, now he's a contractor and has fully elevated his crimes from assault to murder. You can only hide the good guy facade for so long though, the cracks start to show. And in 1978, police started to suspect Gacy may be living a double life because of the disappearance of teenager Robert Peast. The day Robert disappeared, he was at a pharmacy where he worked chatting with his friend and coworker, Kim. 
In an interview, Kim said it was really cold that day, so she actually borrowed Robert's jacket while they talked. Back then, when you developed pictures at the pharmacy, you got a receipt that matched with the envelope that your film was put inside. So when you came to pick it up, you handed them that receipt and then you got your pictures. Kim was developing film that day, so she had a receipt. She tossed the receipt in the trash like she always did. But for some unknown reason, she looked down at it as Robert was talking to her and she took it back out of the trash and put it in the pocket of Robert's jacket that she was still wearing. That's nuts. Then Robert said he needed his jacket back because he was going to talk to Gacy about construction work. And Robert walked out of the pharmacy and disappeared. So sad. But we know Gacy got caught. So how did it go down? How? Obviously, the police go to Gacy's house to chat with him about Robert once they learn that he's missing and Gacy was the last person that he was going to talk to. Yes, they'll want to talk to you about that. Correct. Gacy said he knew nothing about where Robert may be. But then here's where the past comes back to bite him. Police learn about Gacy's arrest and prison sentence in Iowa, so they put him under surveillance. Gacy got extremely cocky that he wouldn't be caught. He even would tell the officers who were watching him where he was going that day and would invite them out for breakfast and beers. Oh, he loved this. Like, what a turd. He loved this. He really did. And here's where he was either very bold, wanted to get caught, or wanted some kind of thrill. He invited two detectives inside of his home to warm up. I think it was total thrill. Oh, I he think so too. Thrill. He I, wanted to see if he could get away with that. Absolutely agree with it you. It just ratcheted it up a notch. So he invites them into his home. Remember, the majority of his victims were buried beneath this home. And like neighbors had been complaining of smells before too. Yeah, so if you're inside and obviously you go nose blind. So you're, <laughs> you're not going to... You're not going to smell it as hard as everybody else who just walks into the house. But you know who is going to smell that? A trained detective. Yeah, they might. One of them immediately recognized the smell. And this allowed the officers to get a search warrant where they found the photo receipt from the pharmacy that Robert P's friend Kim had put in the jacket pocket. Man. The bigger search then, of course, led to the discovery of the bodies in the crawl space under his house. Horrific. Gacy went on to confess and spent about 14 years on death row. On May 10th, 1994, 52-year-old John Wayne Gacy was put to death by lethal injection. For Robert Peace's friend Kim, she said the mystery of why she took the receipt out of the trash and put it in Robert's jacket pocket will always be something she thinks about. Like that cracked it. It literally is like it was obviously his stupidity. But then when they were in there. Right. And he would have never been able to invite them in had they Robert not gone missing and the whole thing. happened. Exactly. So that receipt, the fact that she put it back in there, that was able to connect. And, and it's it just, just it does make you wonder, like, what's out there lurking? That, yeah. like, she felt the, so compelled to take it out of the trash. Like the universe just in. told her to do that because it's going to be important at work. Good job, Kim. Good job. I mean, John Wayne Gacy being number one, you literally can't argue with. That's true. But where's Ted Bundy? He got caught in a traffic stop because he didn't have his lights on. That's true. When he was caught, 
He had like a big bag of murder tools. Toolkit. Yeah, and he and he wouldn't pull over for the police. And that's when they pulled. That's when they got him. Our cast research god, she got you. I'm again. gonna be honest. I was wait. I thought number one was gonna be Ted. Did you really? I really did. When you, I was like, it's gotta be Ted. Buddy. I know. I feel like they could have been tied for like two and one. Yeah, those are. De- I mean, John Wayne Gacy needed to be on here, and yeah. was definitely number one out of these. But I would say Ted Bundy was up there. He'd and make he- a good. A, uh, a good second. He definitely would because he was terrible and he was caught in a stupid way. Yeah. Maybe so. there will be a part two of these. I think we should. A lot of them get caught for stupid stuff, so I feel like we could definitely have part two. No, they really do. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because here you are and here we are, you can follow our other podcast, Morbid, anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. And we hope you keep it weird until Monday. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Anthony Valsic. Fact checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by J.K. Heo. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from people around the world. Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.